Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about European health sovereignty and what health means for the revival of the multilateral institutional architecture. We're coming out of this fresh from our flagship annual council meeting where we had an all-star cast of German and European and civil society leaders talking about the importance of health and sovereignty. At the very beginning, we heard from the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, who talked about how solidarity and sovereignty are the two sides of Europe's uh, necessary response to COVID and how they'll be the watchwords of the German presidency. We heard from Norbert Röttgen, one of our co-chairs, talking about the importance of German leadership over the next few months. And maybe most interestingly, we had a fascinating discussion between Jens Spahn, the German health minister, and Mark Sussman, the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, about uh, global health, which was partly chaired by Anthony Dworkin, who is one of the guests here today. He's a senior policy fellow at ECFR and an expert on multilateralism. Also joining me is Tara Varma, back to the podcast, head of ECFR's Paris office, but the co-author together with Jonathan Hakenbroich, who's the third guest today and is an ECFR fellow working on economic statecraft, of a paper on health sovereignty. Before I come to the three of you, to Tara, to Anthony, to Jonathan, to talk about this big topic of European health sovereignty, we thought we might play a short clip from our annual council meeting, the first time that we met in the virtual world rather than in Berlin where we were meant to meet, of Jens Spahn talking about the global health challenge. If it is about Europe's role in global health, big part of it is European health sovereignty. And that is what we want to make one of our main topics of the presidency that starts this week of Germany within the European Union and the Council. European health sovereignty means, for example, that we should not be as depending as we are on uh, other regions of the world, especially China when it comes to APIs, drugs, or medical devices, or just masks, for example, for healthcare workers. It should not be decided in China whether we have masks for our nurses in Amsterdam, Warsaw, or Berlin. And that is why we want to debate, actually, we started that already last year, by the way, before Corona, debate a framework of how we can bring back production of certain goods to Europe. It's not about ending globalization or ending free trade all over, but it is about the right degree of globalization and to to define some certain areas where we should be sovereign and be able as a European Union to help ourselves with essential goods when needed. We heard from Jens Spahn how important Europe's role in in global health is. An important part of that is this idea of of health sovereignty. That's a concept which uh, maybe comes naturally to people in France, but it's it's quite a new concept for new people. Tara, why don't you tell us a bit more about what health sovereignty means and what you and your co-authors, Jonathan and Jeremy Shapiro, argued in your paper? Hi, Mark. 
I'm not sure that the idea of health sovereignty came so naturally, actually, even in France. But it was clear in from the outset of the coronavirus pandemic and the crisis that different member states in the European Union were affected differently. It took them more or less time to react. They had different capabilities, but they also realized quite strikingly that they relied on third countries to get goods and services in the health area. They realized that this reliance undermined Europe's capacity also to respond autonomously. The EU has a number of bodies that can provide an early warning system and a response to health crisis, but they were extremely slow to respond. They were slow to respond in part because the member states were not providing them with real-time information, but the reality of the matter is that there were requests for aid from a number of member states that went unresolved for too long and they created a feeling of abandonment among the, the worst hit countries. This led us quite quickly to try and set up a, a format where we were trying to envisage how Europe could bring it its economic might, its projection of power on the international stage and the necessity for it to protect its citizens and its member states. And that led us to see that it needed to improve early warning and response systems, its supply chain resilience, medical research and development, cybersecurity and technology to be able to act decisively in future public health emergencies. Jonathan, you're one of the other authors of the paper. Do you want to lay out some of the most kind of eye-catching recommendations that you made? Mostly talk about the economic parts of this. And, and they're, they're, of course, you know, topics that, that are being discussed hotly discussed all over Europe at the moment. And one of them being investment protection for pharmaceuticals, uh, medical equipment and other key industries for health sovereignty. So um, this goes back, if you remember, you might remember, um, I know you do, Mark, the CureVac case in Germany, a biotech company that's that's working on a, on a vaccine against Corona. And um, that was reportedly, you know, that Trump reportedly tried to acquire or at least to secure privileged access to vaccines for the U.S. and for Americans. And that pointed us to to looking at investment screening and the question of, you know, the, the, the EU investment screening regulation that is not yet implemented in, in all member states. Some countries are well re- prepared, but others can do more. And even those that are well prepared can include the health sector much more in, in, uh, in investment screening procedures be it just through a notification requirement, requiring uh, companies to notify that there is a takeover attempt and governments can see if there's an actual risk to health sovereignty. And another one, the recommendations is, of course, supply chains. I can go into that in some details at some point. But of course, it is incredibly important for Europeans to review review health supply chains. um, Where are there critical dependencies, especially on active ingredients of medications, uh, where where we we all have detected that we we are quite dependent on on just very few countries or just one country in in China. Yeah, 90% of of our drugs coming from China. That's true. There's India as well in, in some regard, but absolutely China. But what's important is that we look at these at our economic relations, even in the health sector, in a, in a very structured way, because we, we may be dependent, but they may also be dependent on us in health areas at the same time, be it ventilators or more sophisticated medication. So just because we're receiving masks from China and we were dependent on them at some point doesn't mean we need to completely relocate all of our mass production to Europe. But we do have to look at it very strategically and build stockpiles as well for when these products get scarce. So, Anthony, I want to come to the global dimensions of this quite soon, because you were talking quite interestingly about some of the tensions between 
national sovereignty and a, or European sovereignty and a, and a kind of global order. But before we do that, maybe I can ask Tara to come in a bit more on this idea of health sovereignty, because health is famously one of the areas where the European Union has got the least uh, power and has traditionally been seen as a core part of national sovereignty rather than something to be done at a European level. To what extent do you think that is starting to change and, and why does it make sense to do this at a European level rather than at a national level? Yes, you're absolutely right. The health remains a national competency and it remains so because member states want it to remain so. What we're going to see a change in, and that's what we've been experiencing since the beginning of the crisis management in the EU, is that the EU wants to give itself new powers when it comes to dealing with pandemics. And when we were writing the paper, what really struck me and us was that actually the EU had all the bodies, all the agencies, all the financial resources at its disposal to have a larger comprehensive strategy on health. They all exist. We actually, for once, don't need to create a new agency. These agencies exist, but they need to be empowered. The funding that exists needs to be streamlined into this wider strategy, and there needs to be more personnel involved in that. So what do these agencies, what do you want them to do? I want them to ensure that member states give them real-time information on how the pandemic is spreading in their country, time information on what are the available numbers of doctors and nurses in their countries, what are the numbers of ventilators. We would need to have a a precise real-time mapping of that. And to be honest, that is not so complicated. It needs to be dealt with at a strategic level in the EU, I think with the Commission President, but it also needs to be handled at the national member states level in a task force, which is one of the recommendations that we put forward in the paper, a task force that would be constituted of the European External Action Service, the Commission President, and the diplomatic Sherpas of the 27 European Union member states. And I think with these people, health sovereignty also makes sense because it it does belong to the strategic agenda. And what role do you see the EU playing in in terms of helping countries procure medicines, protective equipment, etc.? How how have those mechanisms worked? Because there was a lot of fuss made earlier on in the crisis about creating mechanisms to buy these things collectively and to procure them. Have they actually delivered any results for member states? Do you mean internally in the EU or externally to third countries? I think the, the idea was to create common purchasing strategies from third countries, wasn't it? Isn't that... So this is still ongoing. And actually, even some member states who would be part of the frugal camp have signed a letter a few weeks ago saying that they wanted to create strategic stockpiles in the EU that they wanted to ensure that there was not only a stockpile of medicine, but also of medical equipment that European Union member states would share. And not only that, but they want to be able to control the the procurement of that medication. And that means probably having a a tough discussion with China on what our options are and how we can ensure, this is one of the things that Jonathan mentioned earlier, how we can ensure a better control of our supply chains. And I think this is moving forward actually quite fast. I mean, these European governments, they're saying that they want to ensure that 400 million vaccines are reserved to Europeans. And even the Germans are putting a, a lot of money into this as a collective European solidarity effort. Anthony, so we've been chatting for a while about some of these intra-European dynamics. I mean, to what extent does this relate to the debate about global health and the future of multilateralism? Because Obviously, this is not something which started in Europe. It's something that started in China, but has been incredibly destabilizing to Europeans as it has to almost everyone else in the world. 
How does the, the debate about health sovereignty relate to the, the debate about multilateral institutions, particularly at a time when China and America seem to be using the World Health Organization as a battleground between themselves rather than global public good in which to invest? I think there's been a very interesting kind of interplay between the sovereignty agenda that we see coming out of Europe on the question of global health and the multilateralism agenda, which we also see coming out of Europe. And if we think of, you know, two of the kind of very strong elements of the narrative that we've heard repeatedly, and we heard again in the very interesting discussion at the council meeting, on the one hand, it's very widely accepted among European leaders and European policymakers that this is a kind of archetypal global challenge to deal with a, a worldwide pandemic. You need to make sure that it's not just your something you deal with within your continent, but that you have to have international coordination to, to make sure that the disease is being treated and handled effectively on a global level. And at a time for in which, for the reasons that you just said, there seems to be a kind of lack of global leadership coming from the United States and China perhaps pursuing its own rather narrow agenda. We have seen the EU and European countries really stepping up and playing more of a kind of international coordinating role. And yet at the same time, we also hear Europeans talking about the importance of protecting Europe. And this question of, you know, if vaccines are produced, how many are going to be reserved for European citizens? And so there's this kind of interplay. How far is the vaccine or also treatments? Um, and we've seen some interesting debates about one of the treatments this week, remdesivir, which the United States is trying to buy up. So vaccines, treatments and diagnostics, you know, how far are they a global public good and how far are they something which your society or or the EU, in the case of, of Europe, is going to try to ensure that it has adequate supplies to protect its own people in terms of sovereignty. One of the things that for me was very interesting about the discussion at the Council meeting was the attempt both from the Jens Spahn and from Mark Zuzman to, to recognise that a balance has to be struck between those two goals. So um, Jens Spahn said that these two were like two arms that had to work together. And he said in, in quite an interesting way, I thought that in order to maintain public support for internationalism, for a kind of global coordinating role, you also have to show your citizens that you are looking out for their interests. And Mark Sussman very much accepted that point. So I think going forward, there's going to be quite an interesting debate about how exactly you do strike that balance. And it's clear that there could be some sort of coordinating role or some sort of interplay between the EU on the one hand and European governments, and on the other hand, international organizations like the Gates Foundation and others that are working in this field, SEPI, uh, Gavi, and so on, to, to work together to make sure that that balance is struck well. That sounds very interesting. And Jens Spahn was talking about, the, as was Mark Sussman, about the role of Germany within uh, this debate going forward. I mean, I don't know whether, Jonathan or Tara, you want to talk a bit more about the role that these issues might play in the, the European revival, which Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel signalled when they published their draft plan for the for recovery. One of the elements that we put forward in the paper is that on health issues, 
the nexus between internal affairs and external affairs for the European Union is getting stronger and stronger. So there is the objective for the EU to be autonomous when it can in terms of supply chain and in terms of promoting certain healthcare standards within the EU. But there is also, of course, the, the necessity for the EU to play a role on the global health agenda. And that is, of course, because of the U.S. withdrawal well, of WHO, but U.S. withdrawal of most multilateral organizations. And I think we shouldn't pretend that the EU is going to replace the U.S. And I don't think that should be its ambition. But clearly, in the face of an absent U.S., I think it is the responsibility of the EU to endorse a new role on the international stage. We're not just calling for, for the EU to endorse a bigger role out of the blue. During the World Assembly a few weeks ago, it was the proposition put forward by the EU that was co-sponsored by 144 countries. So not only did the EU manage to coordinate its own response, which is not always the case, it also managed to coordinate and to get the approval of almost 150 countries. And at a time where all multilateral organizations are really being undermined by Sino-American tensions on the economic side and by Sino-American tensions in terms of their withdrawal of multilateralism, I don't think the EU really has a choice. And it has the capacity to do it. It needs to rely on strong member states within the EU. I think it's really positive that Germany is putting forward such an ambitious and positive agenda for its presidency. And it can also rely on larger member states such as France to be able to push its agenda. When we see how the EU has moved forward in, in the span of four months in terms of coordinating a strategy, managing to negotiate a budget, putting forward really ambitious proposals for the future of the EU, I think endorsing a new role on the multilateral stage is the only way forward and is the natural way forward for it. Wow, that's uh, optimistic stuff. Yonatan, is that enthusiasm which Tara was channeling there part of the public mood in Germany at the moment? Maybe not quite as much, but I think the tendency is the same, yeah. <laughs> what is quite striking, and I remember Alex Stubb um, uh, talked about that as well at, at the council meeting, is that both China and US don't, don't look that great as a model right now. Um, and, and Europe is actually uh, advancing on a number of issues in a way that we wouldn't have thought possible just a few months ago. And I'll mention just the, you know, the recovery fund in a different context as well, as a, providing a safe asset for the Eurozone. After all, 500 billion euros, if it you know, was adopted, I know that's still very much part of the negotiation, but, but the fact that there is a Franco-German deal on it is quite consequential, or could be quite consequential as well for the international role of the Euro. And um, we wouldn't have thought it, but, um, as they say, the EU is forged in crisis. But how does Europe push this agenda forward when you have Trump in the White House and Xi Jinping in Zhongnanhai, Anthony? Well, I think that for the reasons that, that Tara and Jonathan said, the, the EU can look back with some satisfaction at the, the way it's um, responded so far, particularly after the sort of initial phase, um, you know, the first onslaught of the of the crisis when there was a little bit of a, a kind of national response. But it's moved on very quickly to to work on both these agendas of of health sovereignty and kind of stepping up on the multilateral agenda. And yet, I think a lot of the really big challenges lie ahead. And I think that's true in two aspects. First of all, purely global health aspect, 
there still is this big question about how a vaccine, when it is developed, or a few, maybe a few projects will come to fruition simultaneously, how that will be fairly distributed, how it will be rolled out across the world. And as you say, the EU may have a kind of determination or commitment to try and strike some sort of responsible balance between the interests of its citizens and some notion of a global public good. But if the vaccine is developed in Trump's America or in Xi Jinping's China, we may see a, a rather different kind of treatment of it. Kind of analogy that's becoming fashionable is to talk about this as the sort of equivalent of the space race in the, in the US-Soviet Cold War. That is, who can come up with the science? It would be a massive national strategic advantage for whichever country does develop this first. And then the other question is the economic side there's going to need to be a very big global economic effort to help those parts of the world, of which Africa, I think, is likely to be prominent, where a lot of people are going to be pushed back into poverty and a lot of countries are going to uh, face real problems with debt and public spending. And we haven't yet seen a kind of international response that's adequate to that. And I think there are going to be some struggles ahead. And then beyond that, a further question about reforming the institutions to make them work better. There is a kind of acknowledgement that the World Health Organization could perhaps have done better than it did in this instance. Um, and yet the, the World Health Organization is, as many international institutions are, largely dependent on the support of its member states. And so when you have large, powerful countries around the world that aren't committed to international cooperation in the way that the EU would like them to be, then I think the question of reforming these institutions or perhaps finding alternative mechanisms is also going to be a big challenge. So there's a big agenda there for the EU to work on. I think there will be international supporters. There are a lot of countries that will see the need for this kind of activity. So the challenge for the EU is to build a coalition that can be effective and outweigh the spoilers that are out there. Fantastic. So a big agenda, which we will be pushing through various different projects for people who are interested in the paper, which Tara, Yonatan and Jeremy have written. It's on our website at www.ecfr.eu. Anthony Dworkin, who has written so much about multilateralism for ECFR, is also going to be uh, working more on these global multilateral aspects. So watch this space and we will be coming back, I'm sure, to the podcast with more on that area. But for now, we have one thing left to do with this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Tara, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? In fiction, I'm currently reading Elena Ferrante's latest book, which in French is called La Vie Mensongère des Adultes. And uh, less pleasant and actually a lot more chilly is a paper by Hong Kong expert Sebastian Veig in Tocqueville 21, and it's called The Restructuring of Hong Kong and the Rise of Neo-Statism. It's an explanation of the ideological shift of what is going on in Zhongranghai today and why Beijing is, is changing um, its attitude towards Hong Kong. I think I can recommend Albert Hirschman, um, which is it's really fascinating to read National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade today, um, written in the 40s. And what about you, Anthony? 
Well, I'm going to recommend a, a novel. And like many people, I thought that lockdown would be the perfect opportunity to read one of those big books that I'd never got around to reading before. And so I chose one of the biggest of the 20th century, Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, this kind of epic work about the the Soviet Union and particularly about the, the Battle of Stalingrad. And it is a fantastic book. And I'm really excited because I think I'm going to finish it in the next few days. Wow. Congratulations. So lots of reading material to get you for your lockdown. And you can add to the pile the paper with Tara and Jonathan and Jeremy have just written. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and above all by heading to the platform you've used to download this podcast and give us a great review and hopefully a five-star rating as well. But for now, from Tara Varma, Jonathan Hackenbosch, Anthony Falkin and myself, Mark Lennon, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel.